you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. Today, I'm really happy uh, to welcome on the show co-founder Solana Anatoly Yakovenko. I was really worried about getting that wrong. I think I just about fluked it. Welcome to the show. Um, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So uh, I would describe Solana as web scale blockchain for fast, secure, scalable, decentralized apps and marketplaces. Uh, the pitch I've heard used a couple of times is layer one security for layer two speeds, ultimately highly performant without sacrificing um, security. And the claim, and I, I know you've been very humble about this claim, like you kind of uh, uh, openly said, well, you know, it depends. Um, the claim is the fastest permissioned um, uh, without sharding. Oh, sorry, permissionless. Okay, at 50,000 TPS transactions per second. Um, so the reason why I wanted you on the show, obviously scaling Web3 is a big topic. It, it hasn't gone away yet. In fact, increasingly so, especially as people want to make DeFi more accessible. And as we're kind of looking at things like NFTs, non-fungible tokens, to allow us to potentially cross over into mainstream, but have a totally different requirement from volume and kind of transaction perspective. So Solana, you've taken a particular design approach to solving for um, this problem at layer one, and we're going to we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Um, the project has great backers, uh, you know, good friends of outliers like Multicoin, Block Tower, um, and is making really good traction. I don't know if these numbers are still still relevant. I know Web three moves quickly, but two billion transactions since March twenty twenty. Four billion now. Oh, wow. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, 478 global validators? Yeah, between our testnet and mainnet, that's, we're at about 478 validators. Okay, wow. Congratulations. Like 480 or something like that, yep. Okay. Um, and, you know, but I think, so that's all really interesting. Um, but equally, you personally have close to, but not quite, you're not that old, two decades of optimizing networks. I think it's like 18 years or something like that. Um, most notably, over a decade as a senior engineer at Qualcomm, um, working on mobile operating systems. Um, for those that don't know, Qualcomm is a major multi-billion dollar hardware and software networking firm. If, if you like, if you have a cell phone, there's some component that Qualcomm built in there. Typically, the, the most important one, the modem. Right, exactly. Um, but you've you've also worked at several other firms, including likes of Dropbox, working on distributed systems prior to Solana. And so, and this is something I really want to go into on the podcast. Is you know, for me, what's really exciting about Web three is that it continues to attract people like yourself, um, who you know could be quite happy in uh, a large corporation, um, you know, solving equally very complex problems, but somehow Web3 has pulled you into um, 
its domain. And so I kind of want to leverage, you know, your wider view as an engineer, having built systems used by millions of people that have also had to solve for performance, scalability, security. Um, so it's not just a, a blockchain trilemma. Um, and I want to go into different approaches, like the history of scaling, really, in, in, in Web3 over the last decade, seven years or so. And I also know that you've been speaking a lot about some of the more demanding use cases. So at the moment, the use cases, while still, you know, most blockchains struggle uh, to kind of serve them, you know, we're still nowhere near some of the requirements for the systems that you've built in the past. And especially as we look forward to like 5G or ubiquitous uh, AR, you know, the, the requirement is just going to be an order of magnitude more complex. And so I kind of want to look look forward at, at scaling in that context too. So by way of contextualizing you as a guest, I'm going to do my best to, to describe your kind of origin story. So uh, you said before we, we came online, uh, originally born in the mother country, Russia, Ukraine. Soviet. Oh, Ukraine. Sorry. Okay. There you go. In during the Soviet period, obviously. And, um, but moved to the US at what age? I was uh, 11. So yeah, 1992, April, sometime around there. Oh, wow. I don't remember okay. that. I think it was actually March 30th, the day before April Fool's. <laughs> <laughs> was, was that an exciting experience or a terrifying one? Uh, it was exciting for me. Yeah. But, you know, this was like in a period where the USSR was going through some crazy like transformation, right? Because when we left, it was no longer the USSR. Like, so it was like really collapsing, like in front of everyone's eyes. It was kind of a transform transformative, I think. I think it probably the reason why I'm in blockchain, there's a lot to do with, with living through that. <laughs> yeah. And you're not the first founder that said that, actually. We've had a few who grew up in the Soviet era, uh, era watched it collapse, and that really informed their view on economics and um, society and systems and stuff. So you studied at University of Illinois, um, graduated in 2003, um, BS in computer science. Um, you then did, is it your, was it your first venture? The, I don't even know how to pronounce this, Alessere? Yeah, so Alessere, this was like um, a bunch of college kids with some help that tried to build a voice over IP system. And, in, in, you know, this is 1999 to 2003 um, in Illinois, like outside of Silicon Valley, but like in that kind of start, like tail end of the gold rush for, for like web two companies. Um, and we were building something that was pretty advanced. Like um, if you look at like Google Voice or Grand Central Dispatch, that was basically kind of what we had built in, in college. Right. And that was kind of primarily targeting SMEs, as I understand it. And then you went straight from there into, into Qualcomm? Yeah. So after the dot-com crash, that kind of like scared everyone that was in computer science. And I think like if I was a little smarter... I would have gone to Silicon Valley and just tried to build a company anyways, but Qualcomm was using the exact same technology and kind of hired me in the spot and right. flew me out to San Diego that every engineer there was wearing board shorts, <laughs> like coming straight from the beach. It's hard to say no. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, and it, it looks like it was definitely informative to a lot of the stuff you're doing now at Solana, so I'm, I'm glad you did make that choice. Um, so maybe maybe to kind of s summarize this, as I said, you were there for over a decade and you worked your way up from an engineer to a senior staff engineer manager. I don't know the hierarchy, but that sounds pretty important. L L6, L7 in, in like Silicon Valley speak, but yeah, I was fairly senior, um, um, basically driving 
huge major design decisions and technical specifications and kind of pushing a lot of stuff through. Um, really focusing on performance optimization. Like some of the, I was in the advanced technologies group at Qualcomm working on some really cool ahead of the curve things. Like we got the first um, 4K video post-processing running, like this was five years ago. Um, we had a uh, AR like implemented. We, we took like an AR that was running in a desktop that was overheating and got it running in a phone form factor in like a span of six months. <laughs> um, so like things like that were, were were a ton of fun. And so that was in the advanced technologies group. So um, as I understand it, you were lead architect, team of 10 working on high performance software. Um effectively a software stack that would operate on Qualcomm chipsets for next generation applications. So you mentioned virtual, uh, you mentioned um, uh, AR, but there's also augmented reality, there's virtual reality, 3D camera processing, um, Google X's project Tango. Um, and as part of that, you, you basically also had to kind of build this technology that would work in a while pretty quickly. So, you know, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of third-party developers, um, including a lot of major OEMs, so Samsung, LG, Google, what have you. And so you left there 2016, and then you did a brief stint in relatively short-term, I don't know, contracts or whatever as a software engineer, um, but really focused on distributed systems. So that was Dropbox and Mesosphere. Mesosphere? Mesosphere. So focus on distributed systems and compression. And you said, I mean, that's like you're optimizing for 1% if, if you're lucky for in, in these systems. Um, so I, I guess maybe we kind of pause there because as, as we kind of go into, you know, your career in Web3, why would a Qualcomm engineer be bothered or interested in, in blockchain, right? As, as I said, you've, you're solving for, you know, problems that have very high requirements um, you know, why be bothered with this nascent technology that has all these limitations, still has all these limitations? I think actually like the limitations are a part of the challenge. The reason I was I, even thinking about blockchain was because it was, um, it's transformative because it gives people access to cryptography. Like in, in a very kind of root, simple way, you can think of like me working at Qualcomm for 10 years, Qualcomm would sign code, like we would generate a signature once every six months and Bitcoin users and Binance and all these major financial institutions now sign a million signatures per day. Like there's, it, it just kind of like went from cryptography being this weird thing you did once, twice a year to now it's part of every daily life. Um, and it's such a root power, like kind of, it, it gives end humans so much power because it can displace all these centralized authorities like Google, like Twitter, like Facebook. No, like Facebook gives us a guarantee that these are my tweets, right? But cryptography should be doing that. I should actually be signing this stuff and then this data can propagate anywhere in the world that nobody has to host it. There is no single authority in, in any what is like the source of my opinions, right? My opinions, not Twitter's opinions, <laughs> right? It, it, it like really transforms the world. And um, to me, that was the reason why it's important for engineers to, to work in blockchain is because of the cryptography aspect. And I right. think like the, the details of consensus and all this other stuff, these are implementation details. These are hard computer science problems, hard software problems, but the human transformative part is giving people the power of cryptography. And to me that that's, I think could 
really, you know, change the world, like in, in very dramatic ways for the for the good. They really empower all the all the citizens, all the users of, of the web. Yeah. So I mean, I, I guess is it fair to say that it was a kind of socio political pull, and then actually once you're drawn into it, you realize that there's some really interesting technical problems to solve for, and that kind of triggers your the engineer in you. So. As I said, I, I want to kind of, before we go into Solana and some of the design choices that you've made, perhaps trade-offs, it would be good to just start at a very high level around scaling, the, the problem of scaling Web3, the history of scaling Web3. Um, so maybe we could start with the blockchain trilemma. I'm sure a lot of guests have already heard of it, but I think just in case we've got some new people coming into it, we can start there. And then it'd be really interesting to have an engineer like you with your background who has this pedigree in, in distributed systems more generally, to kind of just walk us through the different attempts at scaling both you know in the past and um, what we're seeing happen now at layer one, layer two. Yeah, so the trilemma is this kind of like set of trade-offs between decentralization, security, and performance. On the surface of it, it, it kind of talks about that, and this is Vitalik's post, that if you optimize for performance and you're kind of giving up either security where you have double spends or more double spends or your users can kind of muck with the state or you're sacrificing decentralization, which is hard to define term, but it kind of means the number of validators or participants in the network. Um, and I think the nuance that he missed or potentially wasn't forward thinking enough is that Performance is fundamentally tied to hardware, like bandwidth, computers, CPUs, and that's an exponential curve. I got I got to experience that curve working on mobile at Qualcomm. We started with like you know 16-bit single core, 200 megahertz ARM devices with two megabytes of RAM, and in 10 years we got to eight core, 64-bit, four gigs of RAM, doing 4K video post-processing, <laughs> like basically like you know. The designs for silicon there were three-dimensional, right? They were stacking silicon on top of each other, memory, CPUs. It, it's like a cube of, of organized sand. Totally different kind of, you, you just don't envision this, right? Like you, you don't think about, you know, 20 years ago, me saying that we're going to have one gigabit internet to the home sounds crazy, sounded crazy. As crazy as me saying today, 20 years from now, we're going to have one terabit internet to the home. <laughs> one terabit internet in your hand, right? You're literally going to have one terabit internet in your hand 20 years from now. So that that's basically kind of like the trilemma is this idea that if you want to exceed the capacity of the network, like the bandwidth capacity, then then you have to take these approaches like sharding or something like that. And sharding is, is trying to compromise security and decentralization. Um, and this is where my kind of like 10 years of Qualcomm brain says, don't worry about any of that because by the time you're done with the software, hardware is going to be two, four times faster. So just bet that you're never going to run into the bottleneck there. <laughs> is it true that you refer to this as, well, it has been referred to as Moore's Law, um, but a lot of people say it's coming to an end. So do you believe that it's going to continue to be exponential or do you think that something else then takes its place? There's a there's totally nuance. Uh, I mean, people have been predicting the death of Moore's Law for you know, 20 years now. <laughs> but the way it like first ended was um, frequency scaling became harder. It became harder to increase like double frequencies every two years. So now they kind of bump by 25%. Um, 
but the density of the chips gets larger, the, the wafers themselves get bigger. So the number of transistors per dollar keeps doubling. And this is because there's just kind of like very many dimensions to optimize. And that's not going to stop until you literally have like cubes of organizing <laughs> that like everybody carries around. It's probably a hundred years of, of innovation there just, just to like optimize that. So I think like that, that's a, uh, there's kind of just so many directions that this thing can go that it's really hard to predict how fast things are going to be when we start needing something like quantum computing, you know, or like if I say a hundred years, the reality is it might be like 25, you know, or, or, or 200, right? We, we just don't know. (laughs) And I think what a lot of people don't understand about Moore's law, it's an economic law. So as you, as you alluded to, it's the idea that with every dollar invested, you kind of get a certain level of return over a period of time. And so I guess the question is, could something replace Moore's law in the context of quantum computing, ultimately that would have to make, it's a business case, right? Is it, you know, for every dollar invested, am I going to get a certain rate of return? Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of people struggle to say, well, it, it's impossible at this stage to put a price on investment into something like quantum, right? I've also heard a lot of people say, and I'm you go going well out of my uh, comfort zone here, but you, because we've been getting these efficiency gains in the hardware, um, we've got a lot of bloat at the software layer. So there's still a load of room to optimize within most software. Software is is become much much harder to build, like it, uh, because it's just much more complicated. Um, but much much harder to build it like people are building you know Atari games in the 80s um, <laughs> like uh, it just requires more tools and then optimizations become harder and harder to analyze um, but we do have better tools better languages better compilers and kind of it's it's again also a self-scaling problem because the beauty of, of software is that engineers typically don't solve the same problem twice you know that we do like we do two or three times but then we generalize the problem and then everyone can do it <laughs> so, so but that that's kind of part of it that there's a lot of human scalability around software development so i guess is what you're saying that the blockchain trilemma is a false trade-off actually you can solve for it in different ways so presumably um and we're going to get to this I guess Eureka moment that you had that in, inspired um, Solana, but before we go into that, is the is the assumption that a lot of the attempts that are being made by other projects are almost pointless, right? They're, they're kind of trying to solve a problem that that doesn't really exist. So everything we're seeing at layer one, layer two, um, uh, or even in projects like Polkadot, where you, you have this you still retain this concept of shared security. Um, is that is that the premise? There's some interesting implications of having shared security or like systems like Cosmos where you have in- integrated like protocols that can talk to each other um, that are outside of just the performance trilemma. Like, so it, it's not like, I don't want to discount that these are pointless, uh, but for scaling something to handle more transactions per second and reducing the cost to the users, sharding isn't strictly necessary. Um, and might actually make the system more expensive um, overall, like for the end user. Um, so to give you an idea of why, like, you know, you have a slower design system that's not taking advantage of the same things we are, but it's using sharding. Um, 
you're effectively have a thousand smaller pipes. Um, and the price to send, you know, information depends on the capacity of, of that pipe in that channel, right? If that channel fills up, price shoots up. Um, if you don't have sharding, you have just one giant pipe, then you have more capacity and therefore the overall prices are going to be much lower. So does that make sense? You kind of like, you know, if you have a hundred different markets that are not connected, then there's a lot of demand in like San Francisco for, you know, avocado toast, the prices are going to go up and that's not going to be reflected in like, you know, Chicago. But if we had one giant market for avocado toast, then you kind of have this like global capacity that's, that's fungible. Right. Um, so that, that's kind of like the main, I think, un unexpected, or at least I'm, it was, it's, it's a, it's a trade-off that folks often don't, don't talk about that prices for users might actually increase in a sharded system. Yeah. And again, I think that comes back to the economics, right? So um, it's easy to look at technical solutions out of the context of the economic principle. And again, alluding back to Moore's law, you, you need the economics to work for, to get that exponential gain. Um, cool. So let's go into Solana then. So, you know, the, the story goes, you had, there's a very specific mix. So I want to make sure we get this right. It was, was it two coffees and one beer, two beers, one coffee? It was two coffees, one beer. Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, it was actually at a cafe named Soleil in San Francisco with a friend of mine. We were working on this cheesy startup taking deep, taking hardware design for deep learning and offsetting the capital cost of it for with mining. And this is how we got, like I started really getting into crypto is we had this idea because we were, both of us were former Qualcomm engineers um, working at our separate companies now, but we wanted to kind of do more hardware stuff because that's kind of our blood, sweat and tears. Um, and I started really getting into proof of work and why I was slow and like the fundamentals of consensus and had, you know, two coffees, one beer, which kept me up the whole night, but kind of put me in this kind of alpha state where you get, you know, <laughs> idea generating state. Um, and I had this eureka moment that you can take SHA-256, which is the proof of work algorithm used by Bitcoin or the hash function used by Bitcoin and run it recursively in a single thread such that when you sample this process, it generates a data structure that represents time passing for somebody somewhere. Um, and why this was like kind of such a eureka moment for me fundamentally outside of blockchain is that, you know, there is no mathematical representation of time, right? There's no math function that actually defines time. You look at a lot of like physics problems like that are described in math, um, you can run them in any direction. There's no guarantee that they all, that they can run, always run forward in time. And this has this been like probably an unsolvable problem, right? This is <laughs> for, for the world. And this thing is a mathematical implementation of the air on time running on a digital system. And it's not like I've solved an unsolvable problem. It's just, this was so cool because it actually allows you to have some way to track math. Um, there's a bunch of, you know, I wasn't the first one to do this. There's actually RSA accumulators that have been done in the nineties and a bunch of really smart folks out of Stanford um, and a, other universities working on these things called verifiable delay functions, which are uh, far more sophisticated than what Solana uses. But our approach using SHA-256 is just very hardware efficient and very easy to 
to use to actually code with without uh, breaking crypto, 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 uh, cryptographic security parameters. So, so this was like what kind of kept me up for like a week and finally like convinced my wife who's an engineer to like listen to me like, hey, this is, and she was like, okay, this is cool. Um, and that was really the start of it. That That's what kind of pushed me over the edge to go start Solana. Um, and the reason why like, time is so important in in this whole thing is that if you look at like um how radio protocols evolved you know this was one of the first optimizations people tried radio towers have the same problem as bitcoin or proof of work block producers you know two block producers produce a block at the same time the chain gets into this unknown state nobody knows what the head state of the chain is two radio towers transmit at the same time or the same frequency you get noise right information can't pass so in radio, they gave everybody a clock that they trusted and they alternate by time. Um, this is this is the hard part in, in blockchain is that everything has to be trustless and open and permissionless um, to achieve the kind of goals that we want to achieve. Um, so once I knew that I had that piece hold, I kind of saw the rest of the system kind of in front of me. Like, okay, this is like everything that we've done at Qualcomm to optimize mobile phones, to get 4K video faster, all those memory optimizations, all those horizontal scaling techniques that modern operating systems and um, you know like databases have used. Now that's applicable to blockchain, and and that was really the kind of how we went for it. Well, I'm going to go and immediately drink two coffees and a and a beer. Uh, hopefully, I don't get it wrong. Um, so so this led you to the point of being able to scale without sharding. Um, avoiding splitting security, um, avoiding the problem of having to you know move state from one chain to the other. Could you go into a little bit about the, the proof of history? Proof of history is how you describe the, the kind of main innovation. I believe there are like several others, but could, could could you unpack that a little bit in a way that's accessible to a non-hardcore engineer? Yeah. So um, proof of history is that implementation of, of time and. And I kind of just talked about why it's important in distributed systems. Um, and to kind of give you another take on it, you know, imagine you like you're on an island somewhere and you saw a thumb drive in a bottle, right? You can plug it in and you have this proof of history based ledger. You can examine that thing locally and, ex and determine that from the point of reference of this ledger, I see that there's a bunch of validators that have been active in the last, you know, five minutes or 10 minutes that based on this thing and this point of view, I can then make assumptions about time from the rest of the network without actually talking to anyone else. So I can eliminate a lot of the messaging overhead of verifying the state or the network. And that's this fundamental optimization. Like we're, we're removing a ton of the work that every other design up to up, up until ours has had to do to, to keep track of the rest of the system, the rest of the state, and make sure that everything is synchronized and kind of in the same state machine. So that, that's been the main thing that allowed us to really move forward. And um, the hard part with like other approaches is that they're trying to like kind of take on two or three computer science problems. We got really lucky with the one computer science problem that we just had the right idea at the right time. And everything else after that has been hard engineering problems, but they've been solved before. So the cool, like something like Turbine, if you go read through that, should be very familiar to users that are aware of what, how BitTorrent works. So it's a way to propagate data across the internet globally in a very efficient way that uses that actually increases the bandwidth of the network when you add more nodes. So that 
it's hard to implement hard computer science problem for for streaming financial data, but um, hard engineering problem, but not like a brand new computer science problem. So that that was like kind of a one one technology that we built. The other one, uh, CloudBreak, again database kind of databases have figured out how to scale across multiple hard drives and multiple machines. Um, it's a hard engineering problem and this allowed us to effectively kind of build our chain. So it can, you know, you can throw, if our account size grows beyond four terabytes, we can just throw more terabytes at it, right? Like if, if we have, uh, you know, a thousand transactions and need to read and write, you know, to different states, that, that's easily scalable as well. So those techniques uh, are typically called horizontal scaling. Um, the reason it's called horizontal is that you know, if you imagine like a set of machines in a grid, you can add more machines at the same level and the capacity goes up. And if you think of it like from a, if you're a radio engineer, worked with radio, this is very much like the Shannon Hartley theorem where to increase capacity, you have to increase bandwidth. So you double the, you double the bandwidth, double the number of machines, double the number of lanes that data can propagate. And that, that's been kind of this foundational thing that, that we've been applying to, to blockchain. Um, but the reason we can do all this stuff is because our nodes don't have to talk to each other to synchronize on time or events. They can kind of trust the data itself. So, you know, as, as you well know, the best technology doesn't always win. And as we were alluding to earlier, you know, most blockchains are, are more than kind of just a, a technology stack. They're an economic social system. So let's say, you know, you, you've, you've solved the problem. Let's say you do have the best technology. Do you, what, what's your go-to-market, right? Is your intent to augment, uh, like fix or, or replace? And it'd be interesting to think through as a founder, as an entrepreneur, how you approach that. that. So I, I like we've been pretty focused on the kind of, from the start, like if you look at our first pitch decks, you know, the, the tagline was Solana blockchain at NASDAQ speed. Uh, and the idea there, if you get rid of proof of work and you have a smart contract platform, um, I think it no longer becomes a store of value, like critical use case, but it becomes a price discovery engine. That if you look at like Ethereum and all of these contracts, even something like CryptoKitties, they're financial contracts um, that may be entertaining, but they're still financial contracts. And you have this massively complex exchange that everybody's evaluating and trying to discover the price like of, of any of these things. And, and those things are moving through all these complicated mar markets like AMMs and other things. So from our perspective, like what we were building was this really you know, revolutionary kind of price discovery engine. It's a global price point for, for anything. Um, so presumably for compute, right? I mean, that's its main is price discovery for it's it's price discovery for arbitrary things that people have markets for. So even for something like and and it's applicable to like an incredibly wide range of things. So because of our background, one of the first things we were focusing on was five G, um, because it's really expensive to deploy. You need a ton of hardware, but you can make that problem a market problem if you have people that bring in self-serve hardware and you have a like a Verizon or Dish or whoever that's providing spectrum and now users can dynamically bid and get the hardware that they want for the spectrum that their phone has access to, right? So I can use tokens and these like AMMs and auctions to connect, you know, 
a thousand different providers for hardware with a, a million different people in like a small market like San Francisco um, and do this at like a hundred miles an hour as a phone is driving, you know, 65 miles an hour <laughs> as, a, as a phone is driving across the five, right. And has to switch between these towers, you know, like, you know, basically every second. So that is like, a, that is a really cool high performance market that, is, that you don't typically think of, uh, but actually does, does exist. Um, and obviously like trading and AMMs are like a very simple version of that, but you end up with like where blockchain can revolutionize is things like, you know, ads and adware and like all this other stuff that we see in the internet that's been kind of poisoning us, right? If you have a browser like Brave, it can cryptographically sell ads in a privacy preserving way against people that want to, you know, provide you information that isn't like stealing your data, right? That, that's all now possible in open decentralized platforms. So this is kind of we were, how we were thinking about this, this problem from, from day one. Is it fair to say that effectively the moat, that this idea that um, a proof of stake network with this economic social moat, actually it's not much of a moat because in a proof of stake network, um, this store of value concept is 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 not relevant, and then also the the use cases that you're targeting are use cases you are making possible for the first time with the blockchain. So in a way, you're kind of leaping over this incremental innovation of rolling out DeFi, for example, on Ethereum, where you're constantly breaking things and you're kind of the, the testing the boundary or the limit. You know, with, with every iteration here, you're just kind of saying you can go straight over the top and enable use cases that you just couldn't even consider on a proof of stake network that's in existence. Today. You can scale a lot of these use cases to real world like user bases. So even like something like Brave, with you know, two well, like one to two million monthly active users, they can't really run an ad exchange on on Ethereum. It's just impossible, <laughs> right? But like running that on Solana can scale it to, you know, 500 million users per day, right? So, so something like that, I think, is a moat. It's a moat because um, once those markets exist, they become intertwined because just simply because of finance and arbitrage and, and this is what markets do. So my vision for Solana was that this thing could be the marketplace for everything. Because even if you take something like NASDAQ that promises, you know, one millisecond trading, um, it's those one millisecond high frequency trades are only trading against the statistical noise and kind of the incoming order queue at NASDAQ. But reality, you know, like, you know, meteor strikes a cornfield in Russia and corn prices need to adjust. That news is going to propagate at about, you know, 80 milliseconds around the world because that's the speed of light through fiber. So Solana by design can propagate state transitions at the same speed that as soon as that meteor hits, you know, cornfield in Russia, somebody can take a trade uh, and adjust the price of corn, right? And this information propagates globally. And because we have this old, you know, like rudimentary PBFT system that guarantees full state propagation, everybody in the world has a guarantee that they're seeing the exact same market as it's reflected by the current set of news in the world. And that is, I think, kind of a moat. If, if we accomplish this, like, I think there's no reason for any other markets to exist. <laughs> so that, that's well, kind of like, that's the goal. There could be still local high-frequency trading markets, but I think, like, 
being a global price discovery engine for everything uh, is, is a pretty good goal, right? <laughs> well, I certainly like the ambition. And I guess coming back to this concept of the economic paradigm, the idea being that um, presumably, I think you referenced, I can't remember if it's on air or off air, but this idea of convergence with blockchain AI, it's something that's been very dear to, central to our thesis and close to my heart. Uh, ever since we we um, we started investing in blockchain, but presumably the idea is that you can have greater levels of complexity and automation um, in these markets on chain as a consequence of lowering the economic barrier, the the, the cost of actually using the system. Um, so let's go into some of those use cases in in a little bit more detail. So you referenced the kind of the five G use case. Um, I know you've got Wormhole, which is your hackathon, right? Um, you've also got an accelerator. Yep. We have a, for use cases specifically, I think like kind of, I think what everyone has heard of is Serum, uh, which is, was almost like um, I met my counterpart of the, this idea that there's a global market <laughs> that could be decentralized, which is Sam. And he's not an engineer, but he is basically like uh, understands crypto and finance to, I think, the level that I understand, you know, software and operating system. And we had this, you know, like week long, three hour long calls about like, how does this stuff work? How should it work? What can the space accomplish? Um, and like in his words, he was, he was like, you know, I don't know if DeFi can be the entire world's finance, but it can definitely be 25 to 35% or 50%. And that is an absurd, large enough opportunity. Um, and they kind of went for it and really a crazy sprint starting knowing nothing about Solana in about four weeks, they built a demo of Project Serum um, and then two weeks later was live. So <laughs> this was a fun time for both teams because I think um, we were you know, handling a lot of support requests about like, how does this work? Or what are these APIs doing and things like that? But they were sprinting like mad building this thing and uh, pretty amazing to see them accomplish it. Yeah, and it's interesting to hear that process of kind of collaboration with your initial use cases um, to kind of bring bring the network to live. And I know that you've also been exploring NFTs. I think the second NFT uh, was sold on something called uh, soluble.com on October the 25th of this year. Um, could you talk us through the NFT use case? I mean, NFT is obviously very, very broad, but... Yeah, so these are like independent teams that have started building stuff on top of Solana. And the cool thing about it is that Project Serum is a protocol, like Uniswap is a protocol, and anybody can take those markets. That the, the hard work that they built was implementing, for the first time ever, a full central limit order book that is the primary function of a matching engine like FTX or Binance, but running entirely on a decentralized platform. No one has done that before. They did it in four weeks. But now that... Now, not only is that code shareable, the actual like physical implementation that's running is reusable by anyone else. And this is the beauty of composability in, in DeFi. So folks that wanted to sell NFTs, they took this very sophisticated and now battle-tested marketplace and just plugged them in. And that, that to me was like kind of like, they didn't have to go do this work, right? They didn't need the expertise, but they can all reuse it like instantly and for free, essentially for free. So it's just a new form of collateral, basically leveraging your DeFi composability. Yeah. This is, uh, I think, another transformative piece of blockchain is that it's almost like we went from like analog phone lines where we have to have a direct copper line that can send voltage across between any two people in the world 
to this like digital packet switching approach to I can build software and not only can you borrow my software through GitHub, you can actually take my program that's running on this decentralized platform and interface with it without talking to me. Like we don't need to have a business deal or like a big pile of contracts and negotiation that, you know, you're going to like use my server rack at Dropbox. It just automatically happens. That, that, that's kind of like a, the crazy cool thing about all of this, right? Like, um, and I think, I imagine like this is going to be as transformative as open source was to development. We went from like these like box stores selling software right at boxes <laughs> on CDs to like open source software that anybody can remix and now to open source or like open accessible services that anybody can plug in and like remix. And that that's kind of a, insane. Yeah, I mean, I think that's why open finance is in, in a way a better term, right? Because it carries through those those principles. And I agree. You know, for me, DeFi open finance is unstoppable because of this composability, um, because effectively you've got these specialized protocols that are just solving a single problem really well, uh, but of course they're interchangeable. But within this DNA of this hyper-aggressive pursuit of efficiency and yield, um, and, you know, somehow trying to find an equilibrium between those two things. So... To close off, to kind of zoom zoom back out and um, to kind of ask some of the, the bigger questions. So in, in a software sense, uh, uh, in the context of blockchain or, or, or Web3, we talk about decentralization and decentralizing the web. Um, but, you know, you're a networking guy. You've worked at the interface of hardware, the physical infrastructure of the internet, hardware, software, networking. Um, how decentralized can the web be if the kind of hardware and the networking isn't also decentralized? And as a consequence, how censorship resistant can it be? So um, I remember, I think in the beginning part of the year or, or midway through COVID, there was um, through Huawei, China and Russia are actually lobbying the UN to propose uh, to break the West Coast consensus on how the internet is structured to allow for greater centricity because their argument was, well, we need greater performance if we want ec economic games innovation of 5G and and VR and AR. So, you know, you're, you're probably in a better position than most to, to answer that question. Is it a fallacy we're ever going to have a decentralized web that's censorship resistant? I have a hard stop in 10 minutes, right? But I, I, can, I can answer this question. So... Um, is, is a decentralized web possible? So to bring this back to kind of the first point that I, that I made is cryptography is a crazy powerful tool with like really crazy implications. Is that when you look at like validators in our network, they're not identified by physical hardware or IP addresses. They're identified by a cryptographic key. And that key is like a small set of data that can be like transferred over, you know, over shortwave radio bouncing off the ionosphere if you had to. <laughs> like that 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 is that thing is what is creating decentralization that key itself and having as many of those keys that have some stake distributed to the largest number of, of folks out there um that that's kind of that is the core part of decentralization it's not the machines or where the actual execution happens so from that perspective i think the the old world is operating in this like physical level and it can definitely like make it hard to for open access and for folks to kind of get access to the stuff. But 
there's enough kind of like global environments where things are free enough to where that access, once it exists, it becomes accessible to everybody. You know, like no one in the United States is going to ban cryptography, right? They've tried. <laughs> this, they've tried. They've tried. But like, a, I think that that kind of cat is out of the bag. And I think that will allow like these systems to be open and free. And you will end up in, in like, I think, interesting paradigms where, you know, we can deploy like a all your UI and something like Arweave or Filecoin that talks to Solana as its execution engine. And now you have effectively unstoppable systems, right? Like truly unstoppable systems and that are indistinguishable from Web2. Like you couldn't tell that the performance here is any worse. If you look at, if you go to like DexProjectSerum.com, the prices are updated as fast as Binance. <laughs> well, I think we we have to leave it there, right? On that optimistic note, um, what a great way to end. Uh, and Atuli, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, really grateful for everything you're doing. I think it's a really interesting experiment. Uh, you've definitely got me more excited by it, having spoken to you. Um, so I wish you the best of luck and, and hopefully we get to speak again soon. Awesome. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.